0: Thank you so much, Scott and Shana. Are there any of you who have come in and haven't had a chance to pick up one of the sheets? If you'll raise your hand. These two brothers will help and make certain that you do so. We're going into a new part of the Gospel of Mark tonight, and we'll actually spend three Wednesday evenings on that part that extends from 3 7 We'll get an overview, and I hope a very exciting insight into it tonight. On next Wednesday, I'll be giving you an introduction to the parables of the kingdom in chapter 4 of Mark. And the following Wednesday, we're going to deal with Jesus and the demonic from 4.35 to 5.20 and then we'll move on. I invite you, however, to turn to chapter 2, 1 to 3, 6. I welcome the opportunity to briefly give attention to this important portion of the Gospel of Mark so that I can say some things to which I alluded in the notes for last time, but did not have a chance to develop. What we have... In 2 1 to 3 5, is a series of five conflicts in which Jesus was involved in Galilee. You can be absolutely certain these are merely representative conflicts. And the reason we know that is they are paralleled by five accounts of conflict in Jerusalem later in Mark's Gospel the portion I've indicated from 11.27 to 12.37. In chapter 7, there is a long conflict, 7.1 through 23, with the Pharisees, which seems to fall out of the sequence. But here we have five representative conflicts. And what I did not share with you or develop for you is the fact that I am absolutely certain Mark, in this unit, turns and addresses the men and the women for whom he was responsible in a pastoral way. That in chapter 2, verse 10, and in chapter 2, verse 28, we will see Mark the Evangelist talking to the community, talking to us, if you please. Now, the reason we know that is that the grammar at this point is very rough in the case of chapter 2, verse 10, and A means simply the first half of the verse. Notice, for example, the third person, singular all the way through, say, verse eight. Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their heart. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, and walk. They were offended, that is, the Pharisees and the biblical scholars were offended because Jesus had spoken a word of forgiveness over a paralyzed man whose friends had broken through the roof of Peter and Andrew's home, and had lowered their friend into Jesus' midst. They couldn't get in through the door, so packed was the house. Now you and I hearing that word, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, Michael? Or, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Well, we know what the answer is. It's so easy to say, your sins are forgiven. But boy, if I say, get up from a bed of paralysis and take up your mat and walk out that door, that's another matter. But what we read as we continue into the account. Is... But that you may know Notice the second person, and it's second person plural, which, because in the Greek language you can distinguish between the singular and the plural in the second person. But that you people, you people in the churches in Rome, you people in the church that we call Christ Community Church in Franklin, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, third person again, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all, and this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. There was a validation of Jesus' authority to forgive sin when that man who had been paralyzed all of his life got up off of the floor, picked up his mat, and went out the door. Now here's the interesting fact. In the first half of Mark's Gospel, 1-1, to 8.30. You find Son of Man only twice. In the second half of Mark's Gospel from 8.31 to 15.47 the burial followed by the account of the resurrection in chapter 16 you find Son of Man again and again. Jesus doesn't disclose himself as the Son of Man in the face of blatant unbelief. He does so only after Peter has acknowledged you are the Messiah. But Mark is talking to Christian men and women and young people like us. That you may know, that we may have absolute confidence, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take up your mat, and go out. It's one of those remarkable asides that are found about four or five times in the Gospel of Mark, and I'll be certain to point them out as we go along. Now go to 2.28. You have that wonderful account of what happened on a Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look what they're doing, that which is unlawful on the Sabbath. Why, they were harvesting. Now you and I know, they were hungry, they took their fingers, simply ran it off a stalk of wheat, rubbed the grain between their hands, and put them in their mouth." But that was regarded by the Pharisees as harvesting. That's how distorted the vision of some in authority had become with regard to God's provision for the Sabbath. After the account is completed with the word of Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man, for men and women and not men and women for the Sabbath, Mark says, So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It is a concluding statement that he says to the people who were being persecuted. In Rome, it's what he says to us, that we might know God's heart is for his people. And the Sabbath is to be an occasion for great delight. Now, apart from these two instances, 2:28 and 2:10, you will not find Son of Man in the first half of Mark's Gospel. I am absolutely convinced this is a mark and aside, so that we can see why was this account remembered, why was it kept and preserved in the Gospel. It is that we might know Jesus has authority to forgive sin, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and we can honor him. And he wishes to honor us in terms of that great day of rest and of celebrativeness that we call the Sabbath. So those are Mark's pastoral words to men and women and children in the churches of Rome and to us. Now, what's interesting about this account, as I reread it in the course of the week, was I found so many anticipations of the Passion Narrative. You remember my favorite definition of what is a gospel? A Passion Narrative with a long introduction. And notice the anticipations that we have. In chapter 2, verse 7, why the biblical scholars said when they heard Jesus say, Your sins are forgiven, said, Why, this is blasphemy. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? When you go into the trial of Jesus, he will be charged with the crime of blasphemy. And that doesn't mean that he swore. See, we see somebody take the Lord's name in vain, and we say that's blasphemy. Now, in, in the Jewish setting, blasphemy was anything that detracted from the glory and the honor of God. The charge of blasphemy already is anticipated in seven. You find it again in a little parable that Jesus told, 2.19 and 20. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? When you're going to the wedding reception and the banquet table has been set, it would be unthinkable that no one ever approaches the table. And I say, why don't you come? Because I'm fasting. No, you're my guest. Share my joy, of course. So that's what Jesus simply speaks out of a, a point of life among the people. They cannot fast so long as they have the bridegroom with them. But then notice, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day, they will fast. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. The arrest, the charge the mock trials, they were no surprise to Jesus. Already in the early Galilee of ministry, he spoke about the bridegroom being taken away, and he is that bridegroom. In chapter 3, verse 2, we read again about the biblical scholars. And we read, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath and it's interesting that Jesus before he exercises that healing power that God had vested in him poses the question which is lawful on the Sabbath is it to do good or to do evil to save life or to kill they remained silent. And when he called forth a man who had a paralyzed hand and healed him, they determined they would do evil. They would kill. For on 3 then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodias how they might kill Jesus. You see the note of anticipation? Now what we saw last time was that all of these instances of conflict in many ways are simply conflict over the segmenting of one. Why are you here on a Wednesday night when you could be at Baskin Robbins? Oh, Wednesday night's Bible study. We wouldn't want to miss that. Why are you here on the Lord's Day? Or the early morning, or the 9.30, or the 11 o'clock service. Oh, of course, we're always found in the sanctuary, so long as we are well enough to get here. That's God's time. Congratulations. What we have done is we have segmented life. Wednesday night, Sunday, that's God's time. Oh, the rest of the time, that's our time wrong and that's what many of these accounts are all about let's see that they apply to us as vividly as they did to the people of that day then you'll notice Mark's treatment of the initial phase of the Galilean ministry is on the clear note of rejection as religious authorities the Pharisees and the Herodian civil authorities come together it'd be like the ministerial council and the city council meeting down together and plotting, how can we put an end to this bothersome ministry? How can we get these people out of town? How can we get this pastor and his co-pastors out of town? It ends on the clear note of rejection. Now that brings us into the new division that I've called later phases of the ministry in Galilee, 3.7 to 6.13, and that's where we'll concentrate tonight. And you'll remember that when we began our study of the Gospel of Mark, I suggested we could learn a great deal by listening to the structure of Mark In the opening verse, the beginning of the apostolic preaching concerning Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark tells us, I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus, and I'm going to break it down into two parts. The first will come to a climax with a confession, You are the Messiah. The second is going to come to a climax with the confession, Surely this man was Son of God. Both confessions anticipated in the opening line of Mark's Gospel. It is wonderful to continue to listen to the structure of Mark. And what do we find, what do we hear when we begin to do that? Well, in that first unit, from 114 to 3.6, we began with a summary statement about the preaching of Jesus. He came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God. The significant, the pregnant moment is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. That wasn't a single message. That wasn't last Sunday's preachment. That was characteristic of what he preached in the course of the early Galilean ministry. It is a summary statement. And that followed immediately by the call of disciples. In this case, the four fishermen. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Andrew and Peter, brothers in partnership with the Zebedee family in a great fishing business. So summary followed by the call of disciples. I want you to see that at the beginning. Of this new unit. We read in 3.7 through 12, Jesus went through with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Is really a moment in time. This is a summary passage that speaks about the ministry of Jesus in the later phases of the Galilean ministry, and it is followed immediately by 313 to 19, the call of disciples in this case as well. So the parallelism is striking. And I've set it out on a little chart for you on the sheet. Now, how do I know this is a later phase in Jesus' ministry? You speak with great confidence about that, Bill. How do you know? I know because there is reference to the scribes from Jerusalem. Now, we might be having a church meeting, and I say, Would you serve us as scribes? And you know that I'm asking you to be the secretary who will take down the notes. But when you find the term scribe in Scripture, it means biblical scholars. The scribes were those who studied the detail of God's Word. And when we read that the scribes from Jerusalem... We are reading about the best in the land. Here are the Yale props, the Harvard props, the Duke props, the Princeton props. Only in this case, they have all come together in the capital. And word about Jesus has spread out of Galilee and has reached Jerusalem and this contingent of biblical scholars has come into Galilee, into Capernaum, for one purpose, to decide whether that city should be placed under a ban for receiving a false prophet. If Franklin were put under a ban, no food would be allowed to come in. No one would be allowed to go out. Every pressure would be put upon us to thrust the false prophet from our midst. And these are the best in the land. The reference to the Jerusalem biblical scholars assures me we're at an advanced point. We also know that there is a developing situation because now Jesus chooses twelve disciples and prepares them for mission. And as we read of Jesus' ministry in this phase, we will find again and again the context in which he preaches is one apostle unbelief. You can look that passage up for yourself. But Jesus teaches in the context of unbelief, and I'll develop that for you, Lord willing, next Wednesday. There is also a prominent note of rejection that is woven into the material, and I've given you the references, but just think of what happens when Jesus goes home, goes to Nazareth, and he enters into the lectern area of the synagogue he begins to teach and it is so evident that there is a field of force in his teaching what's the source of that afford? force? never been at the rabbinical academy has never sat under one of the great rabbis never came to the Wednesday night bible study where does this come from? Well, there are only two possibilities. It comes from God or it comes from Satan. And those biblical scholars in their synagogues, those townspeople remembered the boy Yeshua who grew up in their midst and worked as a carpenter. And they are over. That he should come back close oh, to the And mm-hmm. we read for the only time in Mark's Gospel, Jesus was amazed. He was amazed at their mother. And he could do no great miracle there. Not because he was impotent, because you don't do miracles in the presence of blatant unbelief. Otherwise, people are compelled to believe. He could do no great work there. He was amazed at their unbelief. He experienced blatant rejection. And the division comes to a close with the commissioning of the twelve. for mission. And that fulfills the program that Jesus announced at the time when the twelve were called. Because we're going to find out they were called to be with Jesus and they were called to be commissioned to speak his word and do his work. That's at the very beginning, chapter 3, 14 and 15, and the account comes to an end. Or Jesus sends them out and says, Now, do my work and keep my work. There's a beautiful balance to it. So that's how I know how this division develops. Now take a look on the other side of the paper, please. This is the fun part of tonight. I want to develop for you what I call the cycle of discipleship. It extends from 3.13 through 6.13 and there are two verses beyond beyond this unit that round it off. When that first summary paragraph is given to us, we find Jesus in the midst of a crowd. I have an impression of groups of people coming from all of those regions that Jesus, in which uh, as Jesus was on the lake that Mark makes reference, they came from the south, Judea. They came from the north, Tyre and Sidon. They came from the east, the TransJordan. They came from close at home, Judea, Galilee. And I almost have a picture of the waves that come and crash upon the shore and then he People come and then they leave, but there are always others that are coming. You see Jesus in the midst and he has a ministry of preaching, he preaches about the kingdom of God, and he has a ministry of mercy. He heals those with diseases and he casts out demons. Then something radical happens. Jesus deliberately turns away from the crowds. And we read he went up into a mountain and he called to them those who wished to be with him. And he called 12. And their names are given to us in a quite traditional list. very interesting in the midst of the crowds. Isn't that what mystery? is all about? Shouldn't we rejoice? The full congregation? The larger the congregation, the greater the witness? And Jesus strangely turns away from the many and he concentrates upon the few. Now, it's obvious the number 12 is not incidental or accidental. It's not like I go around, I say, okay, Trey, I want you. Michael, I'll take you as well. Sorry about these things. It wasn't that at all. The number 12 is significant because these will be the beginnings of the gathering of the twelve tribes, the new Israel who knows what covenant relationship with God is all about. It wasn't Jesus' intention that the disciples should be limited to twelve, but you have to begin. And when he chooses twelve, he is making a great statement. Now to these twelve wonderful promises, are made. I've given you the references. The Matthew text says, when the Son of Man comes into his glory and sits upon a throne of glory, you will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It is a glorious promise. And in the Luke twelve thirty-two text, don't be afraid little flock. The passage Clyde developed for us about two or three weeks ago. Don't be afraid, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give the kingdom to you. Wonderful, wonderful. But here, in 3.13-19, to we see them at the very beginning, and I must say they are not an impressive group. You and I would not have chosen that. Brady, we've got a plan that's going to change all of Franklin and all of Nashville. And we're going to go beyond, and we're going to take the whole south, and then we're going to take the north as well. With will we begin, Brady said? Okay. Oh, no. You see, you and I would not have chosen that. Let me illustrate that for you. Let's take one name, Bartholomew. I've given each of you a three-by-five card. And I say to you, right at the top of your card, on the left-hand top, Bartholomew. Now I want you to fill up that card with everything you know about this man. You say, well, we know he's one of the twelve. Good! That's a good place to begin. And we know his name. Oh, no, you don't. Why, bar is the Aramaic word for son. We know the name of his father. He was the son of Tholmite. But he know virtually nothing about Bartholomew. And you know, I find great encouragement in that. Because before this Bible study began, you didn't know my name, nor anything about me at all. But Bartholomew was there because Jesus wanted him to be with him. And Jesus wants me as well, and he wants you as well. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Take the name Thaddeus. It's the same. You know he's one of the twelve. In this case, we do know his name. But can you tell me anything he ever said? Anything he ever did? Of course not. He was one of the faceless twelve. And isn't that wonderful that Jesus was prepared to take faceless and and transform the world? So well, it doesn't matter that you know my name. It doesn't matter that you know anything about me at all, other than that Jesus wanted me to be with you. Now let 3, 14, and 15 make clear is the purpose for which Jesus chose the twelve. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. We can say very simply, Jesus wished these twelve to be with him and to be commissioned to speak his word and to do his work. And then Mark brings this section to a close on that note. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 7 and 11 and 12. Calling the twelve to him, Jesus sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the evil spirits. Verse 11 and 12, If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. It is clear that they are sent out as an extension of Jesus' ministry and they preach Jesus' message. Repent and believe the good news and they do Jesus' work of healing and exercising authority over evil spirits. Purpose number two, begins to be fulfilled with chapter 6, 7 to 13. But what about the material in between? From 320 to 6.6. Why, we see the disciples with Jesus in a variety of situations. And let's simply do a rapid review of what this unit is all about. In 3, 20 to 30, you see the disciples with Jesus in a situation of conflict. Conflict comes, first of all, from his own family. They've heard he isn't resting properly. He's not eating properly. He isn't taking care of himself. And they make their way down from Nazareth to Capernaum with the intention of laying hold of him and forcibly bring him home. It will mean the disruption of his ministry. But Mark tells us a detail no other evangelist picked up. They said he has lost his mind. It is a situation where the family is in conflict with Jesus. That's immediately followed by in 322-30 by the encounter with the biblical scholars from Jerusalem. They don't say he's lost his mind. They say he has a demonic spirit. And the intention of their accusation is exactly the same as the intention of the family to disrupt his ministry. It is a situation of conflict. Why does Jesus take those he wished to be with him and involve them in a situation of conflict because he knows that if conflict has come to him because of his sold out commitment to to the kingdom of God it will come to those who are associated with him as well and I want to say to you it makes an enormous difference whether you face conflict in your own strength or you face it with Jesus. Chapter 4 is the parable chapter. We're going to devote an evening to it. But what is it all about? It's about teaching. The parables are about the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly has the disciples with him. And we'll discover they are as mystified with the parables, as enigmas, as riddles, as the crowds are. But Jesus privately opens them up for them. Why does Jesus involve the (laughs) twelve in a situation of teaching? Because you can't speak for Jesus unless you know what the message of the kingdom is all about. Two weeks from tonight, if God gives strength and grace, we'll look at Jesus and the demonic. The section actually begins with 4.35 and extends to 5.20. The great storm at sea when Jesus is asleep in the boat. And then the encounter with the man who lived among the tomb. We would say he lived with the cemetery. We'll look at it in detail. But it's clearly an encounter with the demonic. Why does Jesus involve those he wishes to be with him in a situation where he has to deal with the demonic. Because he knows if God has sent him into the world to liquidate the works of the devil, those who are associated with him will be caught up in the same conflict. And I want to say to you, as a person who is coming close to his 50th year as a Christian, you do not stand in the presence of the demonic in your own strength. It makes an enormous difference when you encounter the demonic that you do it in Jesus. 521 43 we find Jesus involved with the humiliation of disease and death why if he came to demonstrate what salvation is all about if he engaged in a ministry of mercy those who are with him will also engage in such a ministry but every one of us knows the word burn out you engage in that ministry in your own strength, and it will be long before you engage. But if you engage in the confrontation of sickness and death with Jesus, it makes an enormous then six hundred six. The last account before we have the sending out of the disciples two by two. Jesus goes home and the experiences rejection. 39 years of teaching in the university, the seminary situation have shown me that the world turns on the access of acceptance and rejection. We will do almost anything to receive acceptance and to avoid rejection. Rejection is such a beautiful thing. Now I doubt that perhaps apart from my young friends here, everyone here knows what rejection is all about. It makes enormous difference whether you face these It was only after the twelve had been with Jesus in all of these situations that he then commissioned them now go and speak my word and do my work. So what we can say is this, that the cycle of discipleship begins with a call to be with Jesus. A disciple is simply one who is taught. You, by your presence here this evening, are saying, in essence, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. And he wants you to be here. He wants you to be in your place on the Lord's Day. He wants you to come Friday night for the prayer meeting. He wants you to love these pastors and the whole staff in prayer. He wants you to get to know one another and to love one another in prayer. I know several persons who are battling pain and sickness and life-threatening situations. And only those who know that by name can come and put their arms them and say, I love you. So we begin with the time of Jesus. Times involving conflict and teaching and confrontation with the demonic disease and death and rejection. And then the cycle is advanced when we hear the word, now speak my word and do my work. But that's not the end of the cycle the end of the cycle comes where we read in chapter 6 and verse 30 and 31 that after Jesus had sent them out, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and thought. Then because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a wilderness place and get some rest. Come and be with me again. Now the best way I know how to represent this to you is in terms of the face of the clock. Twelve o'clock. You're called to be with Jesus. As the hour hand turns, You're with him in situations of conflict. With him in situations of teaching. The confrontation with the demonic disease and death. With him in the situation of rejection. Six o'clock. You hear the word. Now go forth. And speak my word. And do my work. Then the note of accountability. As we approach twelve o'clock, we come back to Jesus, and we tell him everything we have done, and everything we have done. That's the cycle of the cycle. Now I have simply reflected for you, assuming every one of us is in that cycle. Where are you teaching? Is this for you a time of being with Jesus? It may be that you're experiencing conflict. It may be a time of maturing through teaching. It may be a time when you feel you are wrestling with the demonic. Certainly I know what it is to wrestle with disease and death. Uh, Maybe this is the painful time that you are experiencing it It's a time of being with Jesus. The only question I have for you is, how long have you been there? Is it time that you now heard Jesus say, Now speak my word and do my work? Many of you are doing precisely that. You may say, Bill, for me, it's a time of speaking Christ's word and doing Christ's work. And I say, I love you for that. I have only one question for you. How long have you been there? Is it time for you to hear Jesus call? To now come and see with you again because I have new things to teach you, new revelations to share with you, new experiences of intimacy that I want you to enjoy. And when was the last time that you came before Jesus in all the good stuff. Accountability is the question. I believe that cycle of discipleship goes on and on and on, and we are always in friendship. You know, with a life-threatening disease like multiple myeloma. The Lord graciously gives me a word to speak and a word to do. But the time's going to come. What well, he's going to say, yeah. it is time now. to be caught up with little reason of my father. But what about you? You may not have any like threating disease. A season must be. Those of us who are teaching and doing the work of Christ, he wants us to come at the end of every day tell him what he said One time, a president of an university chapter approached me. He said, I'm president of our chapter, but in many ways on the good I've done many things in which I've sin. But I will give my life radically to the Lord if you can show me how i will not fall on my face and dance again I prayed about that as i walked and talked with him what i saw is make a 24-hour commitment when i wake up in the morning I say Lord, this day before life, this day i'm Before I go to sleep tonight, I want to say this is what I'm saying. Is... i want to be a part of it. I want to say this is what and... i God. What fun to discover a pattern like this in the heart of our gospel. We can see what this would have meant for men and women and children who were threatened with humiliation and death. Help us to see what it means to us. It helps Richness and poverty. The great friend, We love to Examine our How long has it been on fire tonight? the time for the Now come home. How long we have sat and basked your presence. We scarcely heard you say, now speak on Father God, seal to our hearts by your Holy Spirit mock the faith of the disciples of the God of the